Welcome back to Real Voices of the Game. I'm Dave D'Agostino, and I'm joined here today by my co-host, Hall of Fame pitcher Jim Cott, and this is Cott's Corner, episode 274 on the network programming. And I heard a little bit of different music today. We'll get to that in a second. If you heard the Coach and Kernan yesterday or two days ago, you'll, you'll, you'll understand why with our guest, Ray Negron, has a special relationship with Jim. But uh, before we, we say hello to Jim and, and introduce him for the show, just want to thank our 50,000, almost 50,000 subscribers. Uh, because of your help and support, we are now the latest podcast series on iHeartRadio. So thank you for that. Keep doing what you're doing. Give Jim five stars today. Write some great comments and always supply us with questions because these shows are for you. Uh, 74 countries still grassroots to MLB front offices, just trying to build a better baseball IQ out there. And with the sophisticated audience we have, I think uh, you do that every every week, Jim. So, Jim, welcome back to your show. Good to have you. Good to be back as always. Yeah. We, um, you know, we, we text back and forth and talk throughout the week about some topics. And I didn't mean to throw the audience for a loop with a little Bee Gees. Bee Gees I love the Bee Gees. It's one of the few records that I own. And uh, so I was excited to hear from Ray Negron. Um, former bat boy with the Yankees, ended up being with the Pittsburgh Priors, now a baseball executive for the Yanks. Uh, but when I mentioned your name to him, he paused, he, he sighed, and he said, I love Jim Cott. And so I texted you that yesterday, um, right after the show. And uh, but share a little bit you know, about your your time with Ray and, and the significance of that song, because he told, he told a little story on the air, I got him to tell you, but he, he teased me. He said, can I tell you a story about Jim Cott that you'll never know? And he was right. I didn't know. So yeah, I, I remember Ray, you know, 79 and 80, he and uh, another young man, Thad Mumford, were our bat boys. And uh, we, you know, as players, we, we get very close to the guys that work in the clubhouse. You see them every day. They're young kids that have dreams. And so uh, Ray was no exception. And, and we had another young man, Thad Mumford, who went on to be a writer for MASH and several uh, shows out in Hollywood. Unfortunately, Thad passed away at a young age. But uh, yeah, the, the music that you played in the 70s, uh, Saturday Night Fever came out. And uh, and we all kind of got uh, motivated to do a little disco dancing based on what John Travolta did. So even with the Phillies in spring training, a number of couples went out after that and, uh, and took lessons, disco lessons. And uh, I found out, you know, dancing, if I were a pitching coach today, one of the prerequisites I'd probably have for conditioning would be ballroom dancing. If you do ballroom dancing, uh, footwork, uh, cardio, it's it's unbelievably good. So, yeah, I always used to kind of kid with the guys that they, they go run their sprints and I go uh, find a place to do a little disco dancing. And uh, Ray never forgot that. Yeah, he loved he uh, He said you were better than Travolta. Well, I don't know if I'd go that far. Yeah, <laughs> great exercise. He he, uh, he said you, you were a great dancer, and he he, he kind of laughed at Lou Pinella. He said Lou Pinella would come, and he was so competitive, he'd see you doing your moves on the floor, and he'd go out there and try to mimic it. And, right. and work, yeah, work out so well for him. Yeah, we used to practice him in the clubhouse. <laughs> oh, jeez. But uh, it was a great story. It made me smile. But yeah, anytime he said, do you want to hear a story you'll never know, I had to bite on that. So. But, uh, you know, we, we've got we've got our content for the show today, aside from our our joined uh, affection for the Bee Gees and the disco dancing. But uh, you want to touch on youth baseball a little bit more. I know we're coming off the Little League World Series. Um, you know, we talked a little bit about last week with parent involvement and and the development of young kids nowadays. 
But uh, what else did you want to touch on regarding that? What's what's kind of? Well, I, I just think to reinforce the fact that, and this is a steep hill to climb. We've talked about that, but uh, who will be who will be the pioneer or pioneers if there are any? I don't know, but somewhere along the line, I think parents have to learn to just be parents and uh, not coaches or pseudo coaches or pseudo players. Uh, I would suggest this is a real extreme. Drop your kids off at their little league game and go see a movie. Uh, but I think that uh, to be able to play all sports, uh, yeah. to learn how to train properly, uh, I, I kind of train my golf swing right now uh, like I did in pitching. They're, they both require a repetitive movement. And the best way I found to learn them is you do them in slow motion, even sometimes with your eyes closed and at shorter distances. And uh, that would be good for pitchers in particular, young pitchers. Uh, I would suggest they go to some old video of maybe even Pete Rose and, and find out what the game of pepper is all about for hitters, a hand-eye coordination. And I know you've played that. Oh, I love it. Uh, the ground ball drill, which I like, roll the ground ball to you, one of your young players. He comes up, hop, step, throw like he's throwing to first base. That's his pitching motion. Uh, somehow or other, we have to get back to some basic uh, fundamentals. And uh, uh, I really wish that radar guns and any kind of electronic devices were not allowed until a kid got uh, signed professionally. I saw an example, and it just blows my mind that uh, Paul, is it Skeens? Is that how you pronounce it? The number one pick came out yeah, of LA. Yeah, he's six, seven, six, eight pitcher. The Pirates are shutting him down because he has ticked all the boxes and he has pitched six and two thirds innings. Now, I have all the respect in the world for Ben Charrington. Consider him a friend. He's the GM there. But I just don't understand how a pitcher can develop his craft to its fullest extent by pitching six and two-thirds innings and then being shut down and going to the developmental part of the program, which I'm sure would be exercises both physical and mental. Uh, and somehow we, we have to get our young kids back to just throw the ball out, complete, and let them play. A couple examples came up. I happened to be, we have a Tuesday morning bridge game here at to where I live in Vermont. And I didn't realize till yesterday, one of my friends and bridge colleagues, Barry Davidson, was Mike Lowell's little league coach. And if you remember, oh, wow. Mike Lowell played third base for the, for the Red Sox and actually uh, got his first hit, I believe, with the Yankees when I, I, I gave him a, a note, put a note on his stool, first of many, I hope. And Barry was telling me how when Mike Lowell was in Little League, he was he was just a small kid. He didn't stand out, but he was so competitive and loved to play and compete. And uh, and that's we, we need more of that. We, we tend to, uh, you know, kind of shun the smaller kids off to the side. And I've mentioned this to you before. It would be nice if if Little League or youth sports were separated by height and weight and not age. I think it would be a more level playing field. And again, these are uh, these are things that are just hard to accomplish right now with what's going on in the world of sports. I'll give you a really out of left field example of uh, one of the things that I, I think happens to a lot of our young players is they're forced to to run, hit, and pitch uh, 
at a higher level at a, at more speed than their body is accustomed to. So one of our workers at, uh, at Equanic golf club was become a good friend, Hogan Senate. He's a sheep farmer. And so it was lambing season. So I said, Hogan, when does a lamb become a sheep? And he said, the veterinarian society says when their bones at the joint are completely fused. And now we're seeing a, a, a uptick in the in the injuries to racehorses that for years you didn't race a, a quality horse till they were three years old. Now they're racing at two so they can get to the breeding shed and make more money. And we're seeing more more injuries and more fatal injuries. So the same thing is true in sports. We're forcing our kids to do things that their skeleton is not prepared to do yet. And then when they are prepared to do it, like say this Paul Skeens, then all of a sudden they're going to hothouse him and say, well, six and two thirds inning is enough. And I don't know when that will change, but uh, if, if, if we really want to develop, uh, you know, quality and exciting pitching duels, like we're going to have tonight, Scherzer against uh, Verlander, that doesn't happen very often. And how long each will go in the game, who knows? I mean, even if they're at the top of their game, a uh, pretty good chance the dreaded pitch count will come in and, and probably shorten their performance. But uh, even the commissioner has said one of the things lacking in, in MLB right now is, is the attraction of the pitchers, starting pitchers duel. Yeah, and I think at the grassroots with, with Little League, we have to start training our players to be players and not science projects. Yeah, and we, we uh, I, I like the, there was a point that you made about your golf swing, how you, you go slow. I guess if you read the book, Danny Kahneman, too, he, he writes one on the mental side, go slow to go fast. But to go slow, you have to have more control over your body and over whatever it is you're swinging or throwing um, than you do when you go fast because you're lacking the momentum. So I like that that point. Uh, to go slow. I think it works with hitting. I think it works with pitching, works obviously with golf. Um, but wouldn't that be a treat tonight if we saw a Scherzer-Verlander nine-inning duel? Oh, that would be. We'd have to go back. I think I remember when Carl Pavano was pitching for the Twins a few years ago. I think there was a double complete game then, like a one-to-nothing game. But, uh, you know, the, those were not common, but it was not that much out of the ordinary to see a double complete game. And, and what we call the pitcher's duel. And uh, gosh, I look, you know, I, I don't watch the games anymore. It frustrates me too much, but I follow it, particularly the Twins. And they won a game the other day. They used nine pitchers and the Rangers used seven. And they end up winning the game. So good for them. That's a win. But I would not pay a nickel to watch a game that, that had to use that many pitchers and that many pitching. There would be no drama to it for me like there would be uh, to watch a Scherzer and Verlander go at it, and uh, one of the one of the most enjoyable games I did, I mentioned this to uh, Pedro Martinez in Cooperstown. He and Tim Lincecum hooked up several years ago, and Pedro was with the Phillies, Lincecum, of course, with the Giants. And uh, I, I think uh, they both went through. I think Tim might have gone the whole ninth, and then Brad Lidge came in to save it for Pedro, but. Uh, that's how that's how rare those are that I can remember that happening 12 years ago. <laughs> yeah. What, um, and are you, you think those are the those are two of the maybe the last of a dying breed two bulldogs uh, as we transition out of these this phase of 
I guess as we transition into the phase where it's it's basically hodgepodge, it's like you said, seven to nine pitchers to complete nine innings. Yeah, I think I looked up today. I think uh, well, most of the most of the really good teams that I was on, we had we used fifteen different pitchers during the season, and I would say seven of those pitchers did eighty-five to ninety percent of the pitching. Uh, back in the eighties, there were at least ten teams whose starting rotation pitched over 80% of the innings. I think with last night's game, I think the San Francisco Giants have now fallen below 50%, where the bullpen is pitching more innings than the starting rotation. What was the number back like when you were pitching coach for Pete Rose? I mean, would you you expect to get 1,000 innings out of your five starters? Yeah, I, I think so. I th- um, I know, uh, see, I'm trying to think, Tommy Browning, Jay Tibbs, Mario Soto. We were on a five-man rotation then, so it was a little bit, it was a little bit different. But uh, yeah, it was not as, it's just been a gradual specialization. It takes me back to my conversation with Bill Lee, the great philosopher and big league pitcher, uh, when we talked about how starting pitching is being dumbed down. And he quoted Buckminster Fuller, who said, specialization breeds extinction. And that's so true today with starting pitchers. It is all the specialization is is making the attractiveness of the starting pitching, uh, you know, a, a non-factor. I like to watch who's starting tonight. One of my favorite young pitchers that I've come to know, Joe Ryan, or this afternoon actually, is starting for the Twins. And uh, if he gives them six good innings, his day's work will be done. Like Sonny Gray had another six-inning performance. I would say in, in years past, Sonny Gray would now be contending for the Cy Young Award. But he's got so many no decisions because uh, they don't allow those great pitchers like that to, to actually finish the job and pitch the last three innings. And if trained properly, uh, they would be they would be equipped to do that. I mean, they've got that kind of uh, that kind of ability. But yes, we are seeing uh, the game just more and more specialized. And uh, sometime we'll have to I'll have to get Teddy Simmons report. He had a Teddy Simmons, the Hall of Famer and a former teammate, and a great friend, has a system figured out where you can have 13 pitchers that pitch 48 innings. He uses the batting average versus the regular everyday average as a as a reason. Let's say that the everyday average is 220. Well, the the pinch hitting average is 190. So why don't you make every at-bat a pinch hit? So why don't you have a different pitcher for every time that batter comes to the plate? If your starter goes nine, one through nine, gets them all out, okay, uh, he's done his job. Then a new one comes in. Uh, and, And that seems to be the trend we're headed toward. Yeah. And what was the phrase that Bill Lee said? Specialization breeds extinction? Specialization breeds extinction. That's a quote like that. from Buckminster Fuller, a, a philosopher that uh, that Bill read and followed, the interesting guy that he is. Yeah. And I wonder how that, I, I posted a picture of Aaron Judge on Facebook this week to get the reaction of our audience. And, um, you know, it was a very, it was him as a high school basketball player, average of 19 a game, was all city um, him as a high school baseball player drafted at a high school by the Oakland A's in the late, I think, 31st round. And him as a high school football player, receiver, but he was he was being recruited as a tight end at Stanford um, and I forget two other power five schools on the West Coast. But uh, 
here was a kid that at any point in time, you think a, a guy six seven two eighty could say, you know, I've earned the right to specialize. I want to just see how good I can be. But he felt that it was important enough in his development physically and mentally to continue to play all three sports, even late into his high school career. And I mean, we, we could, we could transfer that statement over to specialization of sport as well. Correct. Oh, no question. Kids. Yeah. I think it's uh I can imagine if I had a uh, if I had a son or a daughter who was a you know a potential uh, outstanding athlete in one sport and the pressure that comes from the coaches, uh, well, if you want to play on my team, you're going to have to be here the year round, go through our training program, that type of mentality, and to buck that system is very hard for parents to do. The peer pressure. Uh, to be able to say no, uh, like you said with Aaron Jones, he's going to play basketball, then he's going to play baseball, then he's going to run track or whatever it is. And uh, I think that's why the, the the athletes that came up in my era uh, were more durable because we, we played a number of sports where our entire body was able to, um, to mature. Yeah. Uh, I think I may have mentioned before where Back in high school in the 50s, when we'll say Hudsonville, which was a neighboring school to where I grew up in Zealand, if their baseball team came over to play a game, it was also their track team against our track team. And the left fielder might be the pole vaulter. Hmm. So when the pole vault came up, time called, you put a, a, a designated left fielder in while Johnny goes to perform in the pole vault, and then he goes back to play left field. And yeah. But that's the way it was, where you you played uh, as many sports as you could. Well, it takes adults getting along too, and I, I mean, I was fortunate. I got to play two sports for four years as a college athlete, and I had never got pulled in any direction by either coach. Uh, they were both supportive of it. They saw it as unique and special, and they did everything they could to foster and cultivate it. And I'm uh, thankful to have two to have had two very mature, very good college coaches do that, and trainers and. My parents supported it, but that's why we started our program one-on-one -on -one with these, with baseball and basketball. And we're about to add soccer to it because we have four children and we were feeling that pull to where it was almost impossible schedule wise to allow a kid to play multiple sports. So we thought, okay, rather than pull our kids through this, we're going to create a system that works for us. And we've actually attracted hundreds of other kids whose parents believe they just didn't know how to do it. Um, that, that, and that's what we basically cater to the, the multi-sport athlete. Um, well, that's, that's great that you're doing that. It's, uh, it's rare and I can understand the pressure, uh, you go through from, from coaches and that's where it's got to start where, where coaches can be willing, uh, to say, well, okay, if you want to play basketball, you, you're still going to have every opportunity to make our baseball team. You're not going to get shuttled down to the end of the line just because, uh, you didn't practice. And then, and of course now they have these year round programs where kids are losing, uh, are using weights and they're taking lessons and somehow or other that's, that's gotta be, uh, you know, dumbed down to the point where not dumbed down, but it's gotta be restricted where you just play your sport and practice your sport during the season, then take a little break. Uh, if you were to talk to Dr. Andrews and I'm sure a lot of noted orthopedic surgeons, that's where a lot of these injuries are uh, are starting. I remember uh, David Alchek, who still does some uh, uh, elbow surgeries. Uh, he, he did, you know, the Tommy John surgery. I think he did it on Matt Harvey. But I remember him telling me years ago that uh, that most of the kids that came in for help were young girls playing soccer at a young age, and they were having ankle injuries. 
uh, from the quick turns and twists that they weren't quite, uh, their bones probably had not formed enough. Now, if they just played soccer for X amount of games during the season and then rested, you know, the other time as far as using that kind of activity, uh, they might be able to avoid some of those injuries. I like that. I, 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 I was sitting with, after we had a tournament this weekend, I want to get your thoughts on this, kind of plays in to what we're talking about. We had a tournament, and the, the group that we went with, they do a wonderful job, and I help push scouts and colleges to the event to help everybody there, including our kids. But when we sat after the event, I stayed extra, and I sat with all the scouts that were there, um, retired scouts that were doing some extra work, and college uh, scouts as well, and went through their grading system on you know basic five tools, average power, fielding, running, and throwing. But as we talked more and more, we, we added some components to it. And uh, one of the things we talked about, I mean, I'll give you the, the, the four things we talked about to add to it, was baseball awareness, know what to do and when to do it. Uh, we felt that because it's baseball's overtrained right now and under coach, these kids don't have baseball awareness, respect for the game and respect for country. We added that in as well. Um, we added heart. As we talked about some, you know, uh, like Mike Lowell, just a competitor as a young kid. And the fourth thing, this goes back to our last podcast. I actually quoted you in the meeting and said, we, I got this from Jim last week, but um, body language of the parents during games and, and the behavior of parents during games. And we actually had a young man on our team that was brought up by a couple of the coaches there who said, all your kids behave properly. Parents just sit, clap, whatever. And there was one gentleman who, who just for whatever reason, mentally couldn't handle the stresses and pressures of a 15-year-old baseball game. Who knows? But he goes, I saw you walk over to him quietly to the fence and say something. What did you say? And I asked him if he if he was having trouble uh, with the stresses and pressures of a 15-year-old game. And then I politely recommended that he sit down right now or leave the park. And uh, he sat down and, and quieted. So, But anyway, th- those were some of the things we added. And, and I mean, what, what are your thoughts on that? Baseball awareness is one that I was, I thought was lacking uh, a ton with these kids. Yeah, that's, that's why we're on the major league level, and I'm sure it filters down, that uh, you're, you're lacking uh, people like uh, Pete Rose, who can't be in the game right now. But Pete Rose, for his limited physical ability compared to the ability of players today, had what you're talking about, baseball awareness and baseball IQ. And, and he could sit on the bench next to somebody and, and talk about everything that's going on on the field and what to be aware of. Uh, I'll give you an example about that with the Twins. Uh, Paul Molitor is, uh, was the manager, of course, for the Twins, and now he goes down to spring training as a, a special instructor. But uh, uh, they have a, a minor league coach in their organization, Tucker Frawley, played for a friend of mine, John Stuper, at Yale. And Tuck makes it a point to sit next to Molly during the exhibition games. And he said that's where he learns his baseball because Paul Molitor's looking out on the field and talking about what's going on away from the ball and what to be aware of, how deep the outfielder's playing, you know, can you take an extra base, things like that. And as long as we're hiring, as long as MLB is hiring coaches based on their ability to improve a player's mechanics – and give you some tendencies uh, through all the statistical categories that they have, you're, you're never going to achieve the baseball awareness that you could with somebody that's been there and done it. Yeah, I, I thought that was a 
that was a key step forward, I think, in evaluating. And then uh, I loved when they said respect for the game because we talk a lot about, you know, unnecessary celebrations or, um, you know, we talked about uh, just the, some of the way the game's gotten sidetracked with it. And then respect for country. I thought that was an interesting add-on, which, uh, you know, we've had some experiences with uh, people representing our country in, in national events, kneeling. We went through that watching the NBA a little bit. And uh, I just think regardless of your, your, you know, whatever your political beliefs are, when the flag gets played, <laughs> you stand and you you do your, your, your duty and your diligence. There's a lot of people that battled for that flag to be up there. So that's why I stand. And I always thought that was... That was the moment during the games I always got chilled. Didn't matter what level, from Little League all the way up to professional baseball. Um, you stand, you look, you, if you sing, great. If not, pay respect and and give your eye contact to that flag. But I thought that was an interesting add-on. I, w- I was very happily surprised to hear that. Yeah, and I think uh, another another additional thing that I wish we could get back to is the the image that Arnold Palmer in golf and my, my friend and teammate uh, the late Harmon Killebrew did in baseball is they from the day they started signing their autograph uh, they made sure that they wrote their name so that the person that was getting the signature knew who it was so now I will see during the day on the MLB uh, at bat page articles and then it will have like it today I think it had Giancarlo Stanton's signature because he hit his 400th home run Right. Yeah. Well, you if you didn't know that by reading that article, that was him. Uh, and I see this even at autograph shows that I go to. I thought, what is that person going to say when they get home and see that signature? And then they have to scratch their head and say, who was that? And uh, we're just we're just getting so kind of disrespectful for the fans from that standpoint. And uh, and the humility factor I see. I see players hit home runs, and the first thing they're doing is, you know, looking in the dugout, lifting their hands, and that's that's accepted today. And uh, I wish it wasn't. Uh, I, I like the days when my friend Harmon would hit a home run. He had 573 of them. He might take a quick glance at it, and then he would politely drop his bat down, trot around the bases, tip, tip his helmet, and go into the dugout. And uh, you know, I, I remember that vividly because that was a routine he had and there wasn't any of that showing up the opposition or having to look at me, how great am I, what I just did. Uh, and I wish we could uh, have a little more a little more humility, a little more accountability, and a little more responsibility. Uh, and that's got to come from coaches and parents. Yeah. The, the, the thing I loved about the last four they added was you couldn't measure it with numbers. To, and, you know, the third one they added was hearts. And, uh, you know, I guess asking you, you've competed at the highest levels. You're in the top 1% of the game, um, being as a Hall of Famer. What, how, how do you know a guy's got heart? What are some things that, that you can tell? Well, I, I think uh, a lot of times you can tell by their body language. You can tell by the look in their eyes or the picture sometime. And just, just by being their teammate for a while, you can tell which of the guys you'd like to go to battle with and which might be a little on the – on the timid side. And, and that's why years ago they didn't have the physical ability that players have today, but yet you had players of a, of a smaller stature, like a, like a Pete Rose that turned out to be a great player because he had those additional qualities beyond just uh, the ability to hit, run and throw. Yeah. I got asked that question in the meeting, like how would I define it? And I laughed. I said, let's be careful of not defining it too, you know, so we're trying to make it, 
you know, trying to specialize that category now, but I, I gave him the best I could. I said, you know, it's like, it's like these kids, they get out, um, beginning of the season and they're excited that first third of the season, they're pumped up, they're high energy. Um, everybody's feeling good, fresh. And then they get to that middle portion of it and everybody's a little dinged up, a little tired mentally, physically. And you see a little less of the attention to detail, whether it's hustling on and off fields, communicating behind pitchers, all those little things that with the new shiny toy, the first third, they were good. I said, but then that last third, when you don't feel like going out there every day and you're, you just, I don't want to play today. I don't want to practice today. Those are the guys with the heart that you can't tell what phase of the season they're in based on their, as you said, body language, based on their energy level, based on their enthusiasm. They do it the same way every time, no matter how they feel. You, you'll never be the wiser if they're hurt, if they're tired, if they're sore. And that to me, that, those are the guys with heart that go out there and do it. But uh, I think that's why 1958 in my own career stood out for me with the help of Jack McKeon. And I've mentioned this before, Jack came to my induction and I, I feel like, uh, you know, as a 19 year old and he was my playing manager at 27, uh, I think he's going to be, must be turning 93 pretty quick because I'm about to turn 85. But uh, that was a 125 game season. It was really my first full season of that length ever. And uh, he told me later, he said, I was waiting for you and Sandy Valdespino to give me a day off because every day he said, I have to tell Carol, my wife, well, these guys are going to be out at the ballpark again at 2.30. They want to practice a little. And, uh, you know, when you're 19, you're full of all that energy. And we were able to, you know, to keep that going for the whole five-month season. And I just, I just learned so much about baseball. I learned so much about myself and what my body could do and couldn't do. And there again, on the professional level, uh, when you see teams in the big leagues that are using 30 to 35 pitchers a year, shuttling back and forth, they never get that foundation. They never get that foundation, particularly of pitchers, to, uh, to stay down there and learn what it's like to compete and condition yourself and go through highs and lows for an entire season. So when you do get to the big leagues, you stay there instead of going up and down like so many of our talented young pitchers are doing. Oh, I would, I would agree. And I appreciate you going down that, that list with me. I knew you'd, I knew you'd have great insight into it and uh, probably get as excited as I did that there's maybe some unmeasurables or things you can't quantify that are starting to creep into the, the evaluators minds nowadays. But you, you touched earlier in the show about, you know, the excessive bullpen usage nowadays where, you know, 50% to touch more on that. Now, what are you seeing down this in this? We got September right now. We're in the home stretch uh, playoff race is coming around. Uh, you're looking at bullpen uses across the board. Um, who, who's doing it? Is everybody, you know, just doing it the same way or is there someone doing a little bit better than others? What's your evaluations or thoughts? Well, I, I think with all the information people have, uh, teams have the, uh, the statistical information and then they all kind of, uh, hothouse their pitchers. I thought it was embarrassing the other day and I can understand why Tito had to do it. Tito Francona, he actually used a utility player to pitch four innings. They were, they ended up getting beat 20 to six. I thought, how embarrassing is that? That, I always took pride when I told Whitey Herzog at 82, I said, if we have a blowout game and you don't want to use your, you, we don't want to use Bruce Suter and Jeff Lottie and Doug Bear, I said, I can, I can piece together with a variety of junk and somehow get three innings in for you. And uh, 
you know, as pitchers, we took pride in doing that. And to think that we'd have to sit and watch a position player go and do our job uh, would be embarrassing. But if you look now, Kenley Jansen gave up a home run last night. Not that uh, he's not infallible, but I think it'll be interesting to see these these bullpens that have been relied on so much. Uh, are they going to tend to, to break down? Uh, I remember uh, years past where, in April and May, uh, the relievers would say, boy, when am I going to get in a game? I mean, these starters are going eight innings, and then they go to their A and B relievers, so the guys down there, the seven, eight, nine, ten men on the staff, aren't getting any innings. Well, then come July and August, they're saying, when am I going to get the day off? Because now, you know, with doubleheaders piling up, you, you start to use them, and I think that's going to be the September uh, that, that's going to be the big challenge for a lot of these teams. I, I like Houston. I mean, I, I like the way they're the quality of their pitchers. And I think they have the bullpen guys to do it. Uh, and Atlanta, of course, I think is, is right there. I don't know that their bullpen is, is as strong. There are others out there that are, but in September for the teams that are, what I try to qualify, um, I, I look at it as qualifying for the tournament. You know, you're not really winning uh, a championship yet. You, you might be the division winner, but now you got three wild cards that you have to deal with. And in the case of the, like, say, the, the Twins winning their division, they probably will have to go up against a team that has a better, better record than they do during the season. So you're really just trying to qualify to get to that, uh, to the big dance, to the World Series, and at least the League Championship Series. So It'll be interesting to see how managers handle their staffs and how these bullpens are, are going to hold up because they've they've been taxed a lot. And not just the innings you see, but, uh, you know, we always kept track of good managers would keep track of how many times he got up to get ready. You know, usually if a guy got up, okay, get, uh, get Smith up, he gets up and he's almost game where he doesn't get in the game. Well, if you get him up one more time and you don't use him, then he's done for the day. You never want to ask a pitcher to do that three times. So it's not just the innings you see that relievers are throwing, but it's the time they're getting up in the bullpen to get ready to throw, to get ready to pitch. Does as you know, there's there's one strategy. It seems like during the regular season, do, the strategy in terms of use of pitching staffs and bullpens. Do you see it change in the playoffs? Yeah, I think in and this has been this goes back even into the '40s when the Yankees had great pitchers like Allie Reynolds and Vic Rashi, and then we'll we see it with uh, Randy Johnson uh, with the uh, Diamondbacks and the, and the Mariners that in a short series you you use your your ace starters to come in. Madison Bumgarner, remember when he came in uh, and and really pitched the San Francisco Giants to the World Series? So you see managers then will go to their starters and use them in a different role. That's been going on for a long time. Uh, but again, they're, they're at the mercy of the orders that come from upstairs. Uh, I, believe I, I believe I told you this story, but I'm not sure. But my friend Bert Blylevin uh, coaches the Dutch team in the World Baseball Classic. And that's when Kenley Jansen, who came up as a catcher for the Dutch team and then became a pitcher. So he was one of the pitchers on the Dutch team. And they had orders from the Dodgers not to pitch him more than one inning. Well, now they were in a playoff situation, extra inning. I think it was either, it might have been the semifinals or the finals. And Kenley came in and he retired the side in seven pitches. And he said, I want to go back out there. And Bert said, 
I can't send you out there until you make a phone call. And he made a phone call and the Dodgers said no. <laughs> so that that's how that's how much attention they have to pay to the people upstairs who probably have never pitched. Uh, and that's what managers and organizations are dealing with. Uh, you know, I'm sure you hear it on, on the show, some feedback, and I hear it even when I talk to uh, coaches that are in the minor league system in spring training. They agree with everything that we're talking about here on the podcast, but they can't do anything about it because the, the orders are coming from upstairs. So th- this whole thing has to really begin to change from the top down. I have friends that uh, in, in the game have been in the game a long time that think it will change. I'm skeptical uh, because I don't know who the, who the pioneers are going to be, who's going to be willing to step out way down and say, I don't, my kid's going to play every sport. And then what organization is going to say, hey, this guy's a good reliever. He can go two or three innings. Uh, I'd sure like to see that happen. Yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, it's hard to argue with you on that. I'm, I'm kind of, and usually it's against the, the makeup of my amygdala where I'm like, I'm a skeptic all the time. But from even some, from some of the meetings, and maybe it's because I have kids at the grassroots level, I'm seeing some things start to change. I think it's going to have to be with this next generation of kid, as you and I have talked about, that we're in for a, this is not going to be a quick fix. This is going to be a, you know, a 15, 18 year battle to get this next generation of kid educated on the fact that, uh, you know, I know you're being judged this way right now, but this is the right way to do things. This is how you, you know, develop longevity. Look at the people before you to learn good and bad. And here's guys that just didn't make it. Here's why. And uh, some of it has to do with specialization. I love that quote. I'm going to steal it and use it today. Specialization breeds extinction. And yeah. uh, I'm, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful that we can do this, but I, it's hard to argue against you with the way we, the way this stuff has become so prevalent nowadays. Um, so t- with with the bullpen, you you mentioned a stat earlier that it was it over fifty percent usage by the bullpen as opposed to years past. Over fifty percent. Yeah, I think the, the the drastic usage, of course, was the the famous Oakland A's in in the early uh, in the mid eighties when Billy Martin managed there, and they had uh, uh, I think they had eighty four complete games, uh, and 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 they pitched eighty five percent of the innings, and, and then a lot of people look back and say that was the cause of injuries. Well, I know from talking to some of those pitchers over the years that they they had some arm issues to begin with that before MRIs and x-rays, they were probably, as we all did, pitch uh, a lot of games in a compromised position, but that's what you did. You pitched then. So they went 85%. Uh, nowadays, I, I think, I don't know exactly the leading uh, team right now. I'm going to see if I can find it. I might have one of my emails. I get a lot of good information from my uh, my friend Lee, Lee Sinens over at the MLB Network. Uh, and I, th- I know the Giants are last, and uh, with last night's game where they got pummeled, uh, they uh, they fell below fifty percent. Yeah, the the uh, the Tampa Bay Rays this year uh, they're the, they're at forty three percent. The Giants now are tenth at fifty. There's uh, there's the Rays, the Red Sox, Angels. Oh, no, that was back in 2018. This this year, I take that back. This year, it's the Giants right now at 50% uh, that have thrown the fewest amount of innings. The top 10 in recent years is uh, three, four years ago, not surprising. 
Tampa, their starters through forty-three uh, percent. Um, so that that's you know you're looking over the over the period of several years. That's that specialization that is gradually uh, going to breed extinction because oh, yeah. uh, last night Baltimore won one of their good pitchers, Kramer. He went four and a third, but it was kind of a struggle for him, and they took him out. Uh, so there again, the bullpen had to pitch better than half of that game. And yeah. that's becoming the norm. So we're going to watching a game tonight, Scherzer versus Verlander. Maybe some of the last time we get to see some bulldogs like that go out that are at least. Well, the, the, good thing you, the good thing you have with that is you have two veteran managers uh, in Bochi and Dusty and, uh, and, and maybe they will have a little influence is that if they're going toe to toe, head to head, then again, the flip side of that is they both might be saying, hey, this is a very attractive pitcher's duel, but both these teams are involved in, in, a, in a situation where they could win the division or they might not get a wild card berth. Yeah, you know, it's very close, close to that, that. Of course, we, we reward mediocrity with the third wild card. In that case, they're all playing pretty good baseball, but uh, one of them is not going to make the tournament. Maybe two. Yeah, it's it's a tight race over there. So you're looking at the the playoff race now. Um, you know your time as a as a player, as a coach, as a commentator. Um, who who in your mind looks like the the team to beat right now, or the teams to look out for? Well, I've, I've I think I've said that all along. I think Atlanta and Houston would be the teams that I would say if they got there, it wouldn't be a surprise. That's that's who I kind of expect to be there, but. When you're looking at short series, um, you know, anything can happen. You, the, the kid that, uh, I mean, if I mention this name to a number of baseball fans, they'll say, who was that? And that's Justin Steele. Justin Steele is a left-hand pitcher with the Cubs and his record 16-3. and three. I mean, he could be the National League Cy Young Award winner, and we hardly read anything about him. Well, if the Cubs get into the qualifying round and they're able to start him game one and game five, that's a possibility of going on to the big dance because uh, that's where you're. That's where you really want to depend on your uh, pitchers to go a little bit deeper than what they have during the season. Yeah, and I've actually enjoyed the Cubs this year. It's one of the teams I'll tune in. I I think some of it has to do with Steele. Some of it has to do with. Uh, Bellinger resurgence, and I'm a big fan of Nico Horner. I like the way he plays second base. Um, yeah, so it's a nice sound play. And they did get uh, an Atlanta Brave, Dansby Swanson, as their their other middle guy. But the Braves have just been, I guess, they're boring, right? They they're always in contention every year. And well, they're just relentless with their lineup this year. For years, we identified the Braves with, you know, Greg Maddox, John Smoltz, and. Uh, Tommy Glavin, and then before that, Kevin Millwood. It was the starting pitching in the Braves. And if if they had Mariano Rivera in those years, they'd have probably won six World Series. And now they, they have some good starters. You know, Strider, Freed is coming back, but they just have a relentless lineup. And uh, so that, that can overcome uh, even, against, even against good pitching with the power that these guys have. Uh, they're apt to run into three or four pitches from a really good pitcher that they end up uh, cashing in and and uh, winning the game for you. Yeah, and they even have one guy out that's been he was he's was tremendous for him a couple of years back, but had a tough season last year. I think he's injured now. Ian Anderson uh, was yeah very good for them. 
Now, is he back? I haven't checked. I don't believe he is yet. Yeah. Um, I think he had, a, he had a tough year statistically last year and uh, injured this year. And maybe that was why he struggled last year. But another good young arm that's not even in the mix right now. Yeah, I did that's, a playoff game a couple of years ago, I think, where he actually pitched against uh, Pablo Lopez, who's now become one of the top you know, pitchers of the Twins. Yeah, he uh, good good young, good young starter, but that's I see a lot of that. I mean, you look at Tampa Bay's roster; they have more good young starters out than they have in right now. Yeah. And with with all that we're talking about, with you know reducing innings to like a four and a third is like the common. That's that's I guess that's six and a third uh, how it used to be back in the eighties, uh, but four and a third seems to be the common start right now. Two thirds maybe. Yet we have more injuries. We have more money put out toward injuries, and what's I don't want to say it's funny, but the two guys pitching tonight, um, you know, with with Verlander, he's being paid more money by the Mets tonight than he is by his current club uh, tonight. Yeah, and they both, uh, I think, as uh, as Verlander had multiple Tommy John or just one, I believe he had two. Um, and then Scherzer, I think, has had some, you know, and that all again, uh, man, it's you know that that shows up now from probably a lot of uh, wear and tear when they were young and not. Uh, you know, not developed yet. Uh, yeah, and Ver, it took Verlander a good uh, almost two years to recapture his his prowess because, and I give him a lot of credit for it. He was at the top of his game and had the surgery, and then he had to reinvent the way he threw the ball. Different arm slots, not going max velocity, changing speed, becoming a different pitcher uh, as a result. Yeah, I, I think he's at the top of the list of uh, – of guys that you know, if I'd say here's the ball and we'd like you to go nine tonight, I think I think Max uh, he left uh, his last start because of arm fatigue. Yeah. So I think Max Max is a guy that, no pun intended, it's Max effort on every pitch he throws. Um, yeah. There's no cruising speed involved there, but Verlander has become uh, a polished pitcher in addition to having the power. So you know, I would I would say he's the. He's the gold standard right now. And at one time, as young men, they were part of the same Detroit Tigers staff. People forget. Isn't that sad? I can remember when the Diamondbacks traded Scherzer to the Tigers. The Diamondbacks had him at one time. And you think of all the scouting and, and time that goes into acquiring these guys. And then, you know, because of money or other reasons, they, you know, free agency, uh, they're not able to hang on to them. Yeah. No, it's uh, certainly the people that, you know, they, they say they want to make the game more interesting. I know people get caught up in the trades, but you build a better fan base when you know who you're rooting for every day. And that's, as a young kid growing up, I, 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 I loved, I was a big Cal Ripken fan, but I grew up in New York. So you follow the Yankees, um, the Celtics and the Lakers were on TV every week. So it was like, I, I liked uh, Boston and Larry Bird, but never, ever, ever would I thought, uh, Larry Bird or, you know, uh, Don Mattingly or one of those guys would be even think about playing for the enemy as we thought about it. And uh, yeah. it's just become like uh, Russian roulette with players. They just move them like, like crazy. So, well, I, you know, at my age, I hear that from a lot of the, the fans and I, I try to check myself and say, I have to understand that there are young fans out there, obviously that are going to the ball game and are interested in it. And uh, if this game is attractive to them, I noticed the, uh, Big game yesterday in Tampa. They had eleven thousand. There was another game that we can't think which one it was. They only had nine thousand. So, uh, you know, we still we still have a long ways to come in in terms of getting those cities when their teams in a pennant race to 
I think the wild card race doesn't excite fans as much. But uh, uh, yeah, I, I think that with the uh, with the number of teams now, the the attendance that we you know we have there, it's a shame that there we can't fill the stadiums up a little bit more. Yeah, can I can I ask you about the Yankees? I know you you had, you had time with the Yankees and. They dumped a lot of salary to, to save luxury tax and got some good young players up right now where they seem to be, I guess, re-energized with it. Have you had a chance to, to peek at the uh, post-game stats at all? This Jason Dominguez came up, hit a, hit a few homers. They got him slotted third in the lineup right now. Yeah, I, I follow that. I just think, you know, there hasn't been the urgency there that there would have been if George were still alive. I mean, George just would – the heads would be rolling a third of the way through the season, and I – I think that now they're a little more tolerant and, and willing to say, you know, hey, we've we've had a lot of championship teams uh, over the years, and and we have to kind of wait and see what we can develop. Obviously, Judge is a guy. Volpe's uh, had a great second half. He's playing well. Uh, I don't know what their Severino will come back. They've had some some talented players. The way the Yankees did it back in the '90s when I was covering their games is their position players were, um, you know, were a lot of players that they, you know, they kept over a period of time, either through trades or development, like uh, Bernie Williams and then Paul O'Neill, they got in a trade and then Jeter was there and Posada was there and then they trade Tino. Those guys were fixtures. And then what they did is they went out and got free agent pitchers to come in, like David Wells, Roger Clemens, David Cohn. So, but they, they kept that starting lineup from, 96 through, I think, maybe 2000, uh, didn't, didn't have a lot of changes to it. Yeah. Well, it and nowadays, when you talk to to fans of, of my age, uh, or there's still a, a big number of baseball fans that are in that, uh, uh, that older age, uh, you know, section, they're saying, uh, I just like the days when I knew what the starting lineup for my team was going to be every year. <laughs> and since that, uh, we don't follow it anymore until it gets to the playoffs because we can't keep track of who's playing for who. No, you're right. It's uh, Now, will you sit and watch the playoffs at all, or is it even when it gets to that point not, not super interesting? Uh, kind of depends who's pitching, who's playing. I might peek in at it, but uh... – I follow it, but uh, I, you know, just the way the game on the field is played, uh, with all the emphasis on power, and then if I'm watching two good pitchers go at it for five innings, and then all of a sudden I have to hear, well, you know, it's the third time through the order, and he's up to ninety pitches, and I'm, I'm just saying, what's going on here? Don't they? Have, I mean, I, I know for a fact, if I were younger with the experience I have, that I could train a pitching staff to pitch more innings than they're pitching today. Yeah, I would, I would, I'd put money on that. The only reason I say that I'm, I'm flexible about a lot of things in the game of baseball and a lot of things in life, but I have as much experience as a pitcher on the major league level, as a starter or reliever, a short man, a long man, every four days, every three days, every five days, and went through spring training a number of years. So I, I know I know what's best for the for the human body, how quick it'll recover, and for the arm. And and to me, they're just doing it completely backwards today. Yeah, I I, uh, I would put money on that. You'd be able to do it as well. 
And I think that's, you know, as, you, as we talk about the pendulum shifting, hoping people that are listening to the show, we've got 900 colleges that subscribe to this. That's a big influence. We have every major league club representatives listening to the show and we're tapped in heavily to little league baseball. So we've got the years of the people. Uh, and I, I think, uh, Maybe we can get into a little bit of that next week, how you would exactly train a pitcher, and maybe we can start planting some nuggets yeah. out there to move this pitcher. I, I, will, I will have to give a, a shout-out, I think, to the alumni and to Major League Baseballs. I think behind the scenes, there are more and more clinics being staged by former players that go into the inner city and go internationally. So they are they are getting some coaching, even if it's only for you know four or five-day camp period at a time. But there is some quality instructors out there of, of guys that played the game that are that are putting in their time to work with young kids and and uh, show them you know the fundamentals. Uh, and, and you mentioned it earlier in the show. I think I, I always use Derek Jeter for that example. Is that when he came up? Uh, oh, he's like the third best. There's A. Rod. There's Garcia Parra, and the Mets had uh, Ray Ordonez, who was a yep. slick glove man. And Derek was kind of boring to watch play, but what he did was he did the ordinary things in an extraordinary fashion. Yeah. And uh, manager told me that in the minor leagues, you don't have to be the hero. You don't have to be the star. You don't have to make these sensational plays that nowadays are on highlight shows. But if every day you do that ordinary play in an extraordinary fashion, and that's uh, Derek Jeter was the gold standard for that. Yeah. And uh, we've got an, another guy kind of sailing off into the sunset in his career, Miggy Cabrera. I heard that last night, 3,000 hits, 500 homers, 300 average. There's only two other former players to be in that category. A guy by the name of Hank Aaron and another Willie Mays, pretty decent players in their own right. Where, where does Miggy sit in the grand scheme of things in your mind as far as hitters go? Well, I think he's right there with the names you mentioned because what Miggy did long uh, you know, before launch angle and exit velocity came in, he was one of the great uh, hitters that with two strikes went the opposite way. Uh, that was kind of his style to begin with. For me, he would have been the toughest hitter to, to face because you, you'd want to throw him something off speed to see if you could get him out front and pull the ball, but he wouldn't. He had that ability to stay back, and if you made a little mistake middle in early in the count, he can pull that. But then the other pitches he can take the other way. Manny Ramirez was a like that, a lot like that. But uh, yeah, Miggy belongs right up there with the with the greatest of all time. Isn't that amazing? The two names you mentioned, Miggy and Manny, two guys that are considered power guys had high average, not big strikeouts guys. But their their primary focus was fastball away. They had a lot of power in that gap. It was almost intentional. Yeah, the Manny was such a good breaking ball hitter. He's probably one of the few hitters who who had success against Mariano Rivera. Because Moe's uh, cutter went away from the barrel, you know, away from the handle of the bat for right-hand hitters. So sometimes it was a, it was a little easier for righties to uh, to put the barrel on it than it was for lefties. And Manny did a good job of it. Yeah, I agree. And uh, and as far as you think it's okay to keep them in that category, the Hank and the Willie, that's some that's some great company. Well, yeah, I mean the you know when you look at the uh, the numbers there, I mean uh, he didn't have a lot of. Uh, postseason appearances he had some I think with the with the Tigers I think they wanted a year when he was there but uh uh yeah he's he's not uh you know he didn't have the all-around game that Hank or Willie had in terms of speed and and defense but as far as hitting yeah you'd have to put him right there right there near the top yeah and he came up as a 
look like if I look at back on pictures, a skinny little 19 year old playing third base for the Marlins. And, uh, you know, as we all do, we get a little thicker as we get older, but uh, he can still, still hit the baseball with the best of them. So yeah, it's, it's kind of, it's, it's bittersweet. It's, it's fun to watch these guys, but as we look at the Verlanders, the Scherzers, the Miggies, we see a little bit of that, that, uh, dying breed we're talking about. So hopefully we can influence these young kids to emulate some of those stars and, and move this game in the right direction. So well, Jim, great show. We kept you for almost an hour. Anything you want to leave the audience with today or tease them for next week? No, I think uh, I'm eager to see how that Scherzer-Verlander uh, duel materializes. I mean, you can't only, you can't predict them. I remember when we'd look at the scoreboard and say, oh, Catfish and Sam McDowell are going at it tonight. And then all of a sudden in the fourth inning, they're both out of the game. So the hitters will kind of dictate you know, how well they do as well as what they do. Yeah, and Houston's been swinging the bat well. I watched them a little bit this weekend. They put up yeah, you 12 You might runs. want to walk El Tuve intentionally every at bat. <laughs> oh, my gosh. We had, what, three homers in a row, four in the last five at-bats, and swinging a heavy stick. And I'm drawing a blank on the, the number nine hitter for him, but him and El Tuve went back-to-back against Texas the other day twice, same game. Yeah. Is that Dubon? Dubon, yep. Yep, yeah. So it was, it's, a, it's a fun hitting team to watch. I, I like, I've always liked Bregman. I got a chance to watch him play in college. And he looked like a 12-year-old when he was out there. Little, uh, about 5'9 in a good day, but boy, he can swing the bat. His forearms are about the, the size of his thighs. If you And then the, the guy that's come on and that uh, sort of was unheard of back when they still had Springer and Correa and Alvarez along with that whole crew is uh, Kyle Tucker. Kyle Tucker, yep. One yeah. of my favorites, too. Great lefty stroke and a very good defensive outfielder, too. Which is nice. All right, we'll look forward to yes. uh, we'll look forward to next week, and uh, we'll talk. Maybe we'll talk a little about uh, the ideal way to train pitchers. Love that our audience will eat that up. And so with us, real voice of the game, episode two seventy four, Cots Corner. Catch us on iHeartRadio now um, as their newest pod stream. We appreciate all your support. Make sure you give Jim five stars today and write some nice comments underneath it because we're battling the analytics of the podcast world and winning, by the way, just like they are in baseball today. So with that, Jim, thanks for a great show today. My pleasure.